Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Julian Linskill. Julian is a senior partner at Linskill Solicitors, an independent law firm in Liverpool specialising in criminal defence, social welfare and human rights. Julian, welcome to the programme. It's great to have you on with us today. Thank you, Scott. Absolute pleasure having you, Julian. Now, um, first and foremost, this podcast is all about the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. And that's really come under the spotlight recently with the whole COVID-19 outbreak, of course, and the consequences of that. Tell me, um, how has it been for you as a law firm attempting to navigate the last few weeks? I can imagine it's been really disruptive. Well, it's been very difficult indeed. Uh, of course, it, it's a slope that we've gradually slid down, if I can put it that way. First of all, of course, we were told that uh, in the courts there would be uh, the hand wipes and uh, people should wash their hands, and then gradually it went on to other things. It became more and more difficult. Um, I kept, I'm afraid, asking awkward questions, which... Uh, weren't going to be answered immediately, right? What were we going to do with jury trials? Nobody seemed to have any answer to that. And things like custody time limits where trials have to start in the Crown Court within six months of charge. And what was going to happen to those people who'd already spent nearly that amount of time in custody? A question which I fear is still not being exactly answered. But uh, these are the sort of things that uh, we were thinking about and trying to contribute uh, uh, to those in charge of the administration of the courts without, I'm afraid to say, much in the way of response. Uh, but that's what we were trying to do on the professional front, on, on uh, uh, the office, as it were, type of front. We were trying to uh, introduce spacing uh, with people. We were in difficulties regarding interviews in police cells because, of course, there was very little to know separation at first from people. So you would be sitting typically in the interview room with a small table and a bench, maybe only about 18 inches away from the person you were trying to help, which was not very satisfactory. Uh, That has been addressed to a small extent now, and uh, we're able to do some more video interviewing than we were. So it's been a, a quite a, I know everybody talks these days about curves, but it's been quite a steep learning curve, I'm afraid. It has, certainly. And um, in terms of um, progressing and becoming good leaders, especially, learning curves um, like this are some of the best experiences to have, really, because they can bring out the best in people, can't they? Well, yes. I, I mean, uh, we all had the meeting when things started to get a, a, a little difficult, uh, shall we say. We all sat around. And the, there aren't a great deal of us. We're a small boutique firm, but we all sat around and had a chat about it. And we decided to vote for whether we could carry on or, or close the practice for however long it took. And I'm pleased to say that everybody, without exception, voted to carry on the firm and try and overcome the difficulties. So one of the things that has happened as a result is that we eventually did, as you know, have to close the office because we discovered that really, in reality, we could cover most of our duties 
by by remote control, as it were, by uh, uh, using uh, uh, digital equipment. And so we're now really uh, very few people in the office on a day-to-day basis. Hmm, certainly. And do you think this could actually set a new precedent for the industry as a whole and maybe change the way that it works in terms of day-to-day work? Oh, oh un- undoubtedly that is the case. Un- undoubtedly there, there will be uh, that sort of learning curve. We, I can't see us ever going back now to uh, 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 the situation before. We're in a Cinderella situation, aren't we? Once the shoe fits, there's no going back. And uh, I can only see now the government, uh, in relation at least to the criminal justice system, to using this to expedite what they already wanted us to do, which was to work with less paper and more digital equipment. And I can see that now. Uh, continuing uh, in that way, yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, we talk about the government there. Um, there's been a lot of approval of the decisions that they've made, of course, um, but also there's been some criticism as well because they've taken a lot of measures to, of course, safeguard business while also preventing a great deal of businesses from performing their functions as well with these measures. Um, do you think what they're doing are really the right things at present? Uh, I, 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 I actually think that uh, they are feeling their way forward, and I don't think we have had very clear directions from the top. What we've had is a lot of flip-flopping. Uh, as the course of this pandemic uh, has evolved, we've uh, seen uh, recommendations, and then the next thing that's reversed, we been told we'll reach the peak of the pandemic by such and such a date. Then we're told it's going to be weeks. We've been told not to, you know, that wearing face masks is, is not going to help. And then suddenly we're told it might be a jolly good idea. Um, this is just a, a small sample of the way in which we, from day to day, have been given one set of information and need to have it countermanded. So I, I, I think... Of course, one shouldn't pursue once one realizes that the course of action is entirely wrong and, and maybe harmful. I'm not suggesting you continue to march down that road, but it seems to me there has just been too much flip flopping. And I'm surprised that the government advisors, who are clearly at the top of their tree in this country, are advising the government, appear to have changed their minds so many times. Uh, and uh, uh, I find it hard to uh, to understand why there is not a clear direction here. This is not the first time we've had pandemics or epidemics. We, we have extremely learned scientists, as I say, at the top of their tree in top universities, and yet they seem to have been caught entirely unprepared for anything of this nature. So it does surprise me. It certainly is a surprise, and it also brings into um, question that real fine line for leaders, um, both in government and in business, of being uh, proactive and being reactive, because, of course, you can be proactive, you can have plans in place, but also it's about not necessarily jumping the gun and being able to react and change to guidelines, as, of course, they um, are updated, isn't it? It's um, something which has really, really come under the, uh, the into question uh, during this pandemic. Well... <laughs> I think if, any, if you ask anybody in the public what, what stands out in their minds, they would say 
the, the lack of uh, the machinery to uh, to assist people in breathing, mm. and the lack of uh, personal protection equipment for the frontline nurses and doctors. And it, it, I'm sure we will look back, and everybody would agree that it's absolutely scandalous that nurses and doctors, uh, for weeks and weeks, have been promised equipment which has not arrived. Now, it seems that the government eventually woke up to the necessity for this equipment, have ordered it, but it seems a distribution problem. But uh, the fact that we are four weeks into this already and we're still hearing nurses and doctors complain is absolutely scandalous. Uh, and one wonders, frankly, why uh, we have run out of this equipment, why there aren't warehouses uh, somewhere in Europe, doesn't have to be in this country, but at least somewhere in Europe, crammed with this sort of equipment so that when this sort of eventuality occurred, at least we'd be, uh, we, we'd be quick off this, the, 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 the mark. And that hasn't happened. I'm surprising to learn, you know, that there were only a few thousand of these machines available in a country of 60 million people. Uh, I think everybody would have been shocked to have learned that. Absolutely. And it does suggest that we have, as a country, rolled with the punches a little bit rather than being proactive and had contingency plans in place to be prepared for something like this. Um, with that in mind, uh, Julian, if you don't mind me asking, if you could be the Prime Minister yourself just for the day, what would be the first thing that you would try and change? And it doesn't necessarily have to relate to the outbreak. It can be to do with anything. Well, the first thing at the current situation, because I don't think you could ignore it, uh, is to ensure that every single doctor, every single nurse, every single care holder in an old age home have the proper equipment, the proper medication, the oxygen, everything that they needed at the risk of everything else. Uh, I mean, I just can't comprehend why an industrial-based country such as ourselves can't produce enough face masks. Uh, This is something I don't understand. Um, I personally just missed World War II. Um, I was what they call a demob baby, but uh, I, I do read a lot about it. And one of the things that happened during the war is that Winston Churchill put Lord Breverbrook in charge of production of Spitfires. He knew nothing whatsoever about aircraft, but he knew everything there was to know about producing newspapers. And within a very short time, he'd organized factories, so we actually had a surplus of these fighter planes to assist everybody. We have more planes than we have pilots to fly them. How is it that that could happen in 1940, but here we are in 2020, and we're not able to to get to grips with the same production problems? I find that quite incredible. It certainly does uh, beg the question, doesn't it? And you mentioned Winston Churchill there, of course, is a stellar example of um, a leader throughout history that people have been inspired by, that people um, look up to, of course. And um, what they achieved um, in that time, um, as you say, is um, absolutely remarkable in terms of mass production. And maybe it's that sort of wartime spirit that needs to be channeled in the here and now, isn't it, to maybe help see us through this crisis? (laughs) Well, I think uh, rolling out Dame Vera Lynn is hardly the response that uh, one is necessarily looking for, but yes, I think that spirit of uh, adaptation, gung-ho, I mean, it was exhibited very early on when we were told that uh, the company Dyson was going to 
roll out these machines like Rolls-Royce in crew near, near where I live and practice, was going to be rolling out these machines since then. We've heard nothing further about anything like that. But I, again, I wonder why, where is the spirit of turning your, uh, uh, you know, turning your attention from uh, uh, that kind of thing to um, production? I, I don't know why that has failed. And it seems to me that is a, a failure of uh, leadership. In fact, it certainly is. And um, it's something as well that's really, really important. And this comes back to a good leadership again that we have to learn from as a country, don't we? Because it's not possible, really, is it, to be a good leader without getting things wrong. Most importantly, learning from that mistake and correcting that going forward. Yes, no, I absolutely agree with you. Um, uh, and it seems to me that, uh, that that's a great failing of the current government. So if you, uh, you know, I, I just don't understand that at all. And I, I think the way in which this has been dealt with has caused a lot more grief than otherwise might have been the case. So when we look back on it, I think when we look back on it, as you do with every historic occasion, we will see where the government went wrong, where we could have done perhaps more than we have actually done. And uh, and we'll look at it. And it's one of those situations where history will judge us. I think it certainly will. I can see exactly where you're coming from, Julian. And hindsight is, of course, a wonderful thing. But let us hope, looking to the future, that we can look at this, really take on board the lessons to be learned from this, and really take that forward into the future. Um, speaking yes. of the um, the future, um, do you give me an idea, Julian, of what you imagine the yes. next 12 months will actually hold for yourself and for skill solicitors, but also what you hope to achieve in that time as well, particularly looking beyond COVID-19 and getting out the other side of this outbreak? Well, I hate to uh, use a well-trodden phrase, but we're hanging on by our fingertips here. Um, uh, My firm defends people all the way from juvenile courts, uh, youth courts, uh, festival lollipops, all the way through to big drugs, conspiracies, and murder cases. And we've been doing that for 40 years, uh, and arguably fairly successfully. Now, we've seen in successive years uh, a, a lack of funding. The last time we had a pay rise and our hourly rates was something like 26 years ago. Uh, and our profit margin has gone from 30 to 5% on legal aid. And successive governments have completely ignored this system. Now, we have a, a position where the bar is not going to the Crown Court. They've withdrawn their services entirely. Uh, and, of course, we rely very largely on our month-to-month paycheck that we get from the government. And because of this coronavirus, of course, the courts are closed. We're not generating any fees. And we still have expenses. Uh, I, I appreciate the government uh, um, support for workers who are put on furlough but the fact that we're told that only some 5,000 firms, is it, have actually successfully applied for a loan from the banks yet does not all go well for this system uh, in relation to furlough payments working smoothly. 
So we don't know where we're going to be in a few months' time. Uh, if uh, we get back to normal, as it were, in the criminal justice system fairly quickly, uh, then we may be able to survive this. But the bar has said that there will be, I think it was um, 51% of barristers chambers, and if I'm right, there are 156 sets of chambers in the UK, will not survive past three months. Uh, and 81% will close within 8 to 12 months. And that's the state of the justice system. So uh, um, we can't eat on air. We can't, uh, we can't function on air. We, we need a turnover. Nothing has been done to support the criminal justice system in, in this country. And so whilst where I hope we'll be in three months' time, well, after 40 years of practice, I hope that I'm still in practice, frankly. That is the situation. Mm. It's as grave as that. And I'm not alone. Uh, we're all together in this. And I don't think there are, there are very many law firms, criminal law firms at least, who can survive very long. Uh, as I say, we've been cut to financially to the bone. And if you cut some, an organization to the bone, it doesn't take very much of a push put it over the edge. I'm sorry about the mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. Of course, and it is very, very scary statistics as well. And um, you do say that we are all very much in this together. And let's hope that, um, of course, the government in the coming weeks and months does look at this yeah. and make sure that the justice system is very much uh, provided for as well, because it's hugely important. Um, we have talked, of course, a lot about hindsight and retrospect during this conversation, Julian. And what I also think would be fantastic is to perhaps have you back on the programme in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have been borne out and if that action we want to see taken has indeed been taken. But for now, um, I've, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme. Incredibly insightful. And thank you so much for your time and coming on and speaking to me for the benefit of the listeners. So it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and stay healthy. Yourself as well. Do take care, Julian, and stay safe. Um, Thank coming, you very much. Coming up next um, on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, and that's the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz, and that will be coming right up now. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. 
and the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment? Uh, these are, are are the priorities uh, for yourselves there. Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, a, I could have a, a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to um Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you, um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop, uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. uh, occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the, the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go it's just it's just going to 
keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life. Because it's about things that they have to deal with, or you know that they they deal with on a day to day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in 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 our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least, whether they become actions is another <laughs> a thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority with the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, you may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market. And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know thirty first of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, mm-hmm. um, and for for UK. Um, savers and uh, and investors uh, in terms of where the rules are made there's still there's still not some clarity about that um you know we're we're still uh, well we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um european rulemaking um down the line that's still to be negotiated i mean we've always said that actually for for savers and investors we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds um however it, you know the, the majority of our of our firms look after uk savers um and therefore a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with w- definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique 
industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, num- if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part, I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe 
FCA you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a, a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if, let's imagine, let's, let's imagine you did have one, just for, the, just for this afternoon, perhaps. And you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could... <laughs> Um, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I, were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me! The one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter. Um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at, um, at the operations of PIMFOR again, it's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i, I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We, we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing, that you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward. But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main 
the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know, we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well-being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision. And then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been Liz, an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.